0: Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Zondan, and I am a Master's student of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. With me today is Dr. Edward Jones Corridera, who currently works as a Senior Research Fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law. He completed his doctoral studies at the University of Cambridge in 2020 and is now a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts as well as an affiliated postdoctoral member of Clare Hall in Cambridge. Edward's research interests lie in the early modern Spanish Empire, the Enlightenment and issues surrounding corporations, credit and speculation in the Spanish Atlantic world. Last year, in August, Edward published a book with Brill entitled The Diplomatic Enlightenment, Spain, Europe and the Age of Speculation. Today, he will grant us an insight into the relevance of Enlightenment ideas in the 18th century Spanish Empire. Welcome, Ed, and thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you, Selma. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, to kick off our conversation, could you just briefly outline what your book is about?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, the, the book is a, a story about diplomats, uh, imperial officers, popular political writers trying to to come to grips with um, the failure of Spain to represent its interests in a European stage. um, Trying to figure out how to regain control over an international space that has been shaped by foreign powers and local interests and it's a study really in how this this crisis of of power and identity uh, prompted an intellectual response that sought to turn Spain into uh, the arbiter of European affairs and a type of guardian of global perpetual peace Um, so the book tracks the growth of the what I call the diplomatic enlightenment and the emergence of what one scholar has called the diplomatization of of revolution at the end of the century the narrative runs from the 1700s to the uh, 1820s and it draws in a comparative and global context Uh, considering the, for instance, the political economy of the silver trade in the Pacific, or how Peruvian merchants um, hope to disseminate new uh, German and European ideas about mining throughout the Americas. And based on these insights, I I draw two overarching conclusions in the book. Uh, One is that the Spanish Empire was the first international space in history. And the second one is that diplomats and diplomatic spaces and diplomatic texts issued in the Enlightenment into Spain.
0: Amazing, thank you for that uh, outline. On the publisher's website and also what you just said, it says that your book outlines how early century Spanish authors turned to Enlightenment ideas to kind of reinvent Spain's role in the European balance of power. And you just also said that they kind of had to recreate Spain in, in this as an as an international power. According to your research, what was the status quo in the Spanish Empire before the transition that you described sets off?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, The history of the 17th century uh, in Spain was once one of uh, decline as the Dutch and Portuguese gained their their independence from from the Spanish crown and France grew and expanded its, its territorial and commercial ambitions. Um, and Charles II, the last Habsburg king of Spain, uh, was unable able to, to have a son and, and provide an heir to the crown and had both mental health and, and physical issues that made it difficult to, um, for him to rule the empire. This was the, the narrative um, for a long time and this picture of the, the period has now changed. So there's a growing wave of research that sees the last decades of the Habsburg, um, uh, Habsburg Spain as a period of reform now. And most importantly, there is now a, a great deal of research that is, in a sense, globalized uh, our understanding of the period and has shown just how different uh, imperial spaces from, from Caracas to, to Manila had to deal with their own regional and inter-imperial problems, how they collaborated with enemy powers and how officials in, in each territory focused on different challenges to um, to the Spanish crown. But on the whole, early modern Spain was ruled on the basis of confessional norms um, and confessional forms of authority and a a shared sense of loyalty to the king. Uh, It featured a complex legal hierarchy that allowed local groups with political and economic capital to negotiate with the king. And according to recent research, in a sense, fostered the contestation of power from below, particularly through, through petitions. Um, this all changed with the, with the War of Spanish Succession, which began in 1700 and ended in 1714, and the Treaty of Utrecht, which put an end to the conflict. Um, so, as a result of the treaty, the uh, Hasbro Crown lost Spain and its overseas empire, and Spain became a part of the Bourbon alliance with France. So, the war and the treaty shed a great deal of, of clarity over the norms that were to govern European diplomacy featured a set of terms that were disastrous for spain and made it, made it very clear to establish reforms um, from then on so spain's historic enemy britain was granted the right to sell slaves in spanish ports and france spain's old foe and, and now its ally expanded its smuggling in the in the pacific and a french king uh, philippe d'anjou uh, was made king of spain and uh, he was quite an arbitrary king so he pursued War at every chance, he he followed a very erratic approach to reform and diplomacy, and even briefly abdicated the the, the crown. Um, So in response, we see merchants in the Atlantic and the Pacific basically strengthening their their commercial ties with Spain's rivals. Um, So we see people in the Spanish colonies basically trading and intensifying their commercial relations with the Dutch, the British, and the French throughout the war. Uh, and something that is quite relevant to the book is that, uh, the corporations. So we're thinking here of the East India companies, um, really grow in their involvement in the region during this period. And this will become relevant later in the, in the interview. Um, so, uh, the, the, the kind of the war of Spanish succession triggers a kind of crisis, but this crisis is felt very differently throughout the empire. and opens up opportunities, um and one of the most interesting areas of uh, research was to see how uh, again the colonies uh, draw on on these opportunities but also how they don't really care that much about the problem of succession and so in lima for instance they're worried about the instable growth of the of, of mexico's civil silver, uh, silver mining and in mexico city they're, they're worried about taxes and reforming tributes and, and things like that so uh, we, we tend to think of these kind of political crises as, as being uh, uniformly felt, but actually they're quite quite different in the way that um, different regions of one single empire could could uh, could respond to to them.
0: Thank you. Um, in that time, it sounds like a time of true crisis and decline and insecurity. Um, what role did Enlightenment ideas? play and which changes did they bring about and is it even possible to say that that there's one trend um in how Enlightenment ideas play out especially considering what you just said how how big the Spanish empire was and how many different political crises there were?
1: Yeah that's a great question um so one of the things I tried to do in the book is that alongside the more familiar story about the growth of encyclopedias, uh, which we see in Spain, uh, uh, on the attempt to to set up encyclopedias to kind of feed the uh, the empire, knowledge, uh, the growth of academies, and and the growth of political debate, all of these things. Uh, something that I focused on spe- uh, specifically was the growth of a uh, of a genre that isn't usually associated with the with the Enlightenment. Uh, and that is uh, the growth of almanacs during the period. So um, during the PhD, I was fortunate to uh, receive uh, funding from the DAD Cambridge Hub, which is a network headed by Christopher Clark and and Chris Young. I was able to hold a series of workshops and conferences on on the global legacies of of Reinhard Kasek. Um, And this helped me think about time and and, and power in in new ways, and and in a sense coincided with the period of my research where I I, I kept coming across um, uh, this this strange genre of almanacs. And so I kept coming across these texts as I was doing my research, and I just kept thinking, what what, what is this? Why why are there so many of these things, and and why are they so strange? to kind of shed some clarity, almanacs were very uh, popular texts in the early modern period throughout Europe, and usually they, they just aim to predict the the, the weather, and uh, they were quite cheap forms of uh, acquiring paper, uh, so they had many many uses. But but generally, they're not seen as being political tools. Um, and so, basically, what I found is that in the context of uh, the, the Iberian Peninsula. There was a growth uh, in this in strange genre of kind of educated almanacs. Um, so because nothing could be predicted and the future couldn't really be predicted, um, what happened is that Spanish authors uh, who were learned and wanted to introduce enlightenment ideas seized on the predictable format and the intuitive appeal of, of these almanacs to introduce political, economic and cartographic information into, into Spain. And so again, you know, following a civil war and the rise of an unpredictable monarch in a sense that the, the predictable temporal sequence of, of these almanacs was transformed into a tool to to, to bind reflections on 18th century life with histories of europe and daily concerns about poverty were connected to to diplomatic debates about uh, european dynastic disputes uh, all in an effort I, I suggest in the book to create this type of public sphere and we have female authors also using this medium to educate the public in, in mathematics and uh, political writers uh, uh, trying to ensure that the public knew how to understand history. Uh, well, the text even goes as far as to say that uh, this will allow the, the average uh, member of the public to then see the, the present political problems with a more critical uh, eye so what i tracked was that in in in, in the peninsula of spain so in the iberian peninsula there was this kind of growth through the democratic art of speculating about the future of of, of the enlightenment um but 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 the medium wasn't as popular in the in the spanish americas so we're thinking here of um uh both the spanish americas and um and and the philippines so what we have here is uh, a lesson in, in basically how the growth of different forms of, of political communication can um of the way that uh, different regions of the same polity can understand the, the future. And relating it to, to, to the present mm-hmm. moment, um, I think as the, as the public sphere changes, so does our understanding of history. And in general, it was difficult not to think about Facebook and Instagram and these forms of information that like the almanacs combined, the, the ridiculous, the banal and, and the political. And there is no doubt that, that Trump uh, hoovered over over this narrative, uh, because every day it seemed like there was a crisis, and, and we all really turned to, to predictions to stay sane. So I, I held quite a lot of sympathy towards these almanac writers and, and the readers.
0: That's extremely interesting. Um, I was wondering whether you think that this... Development, kind of in, in the public sphere or, or in, the, in the educated sphere um, engaged with what you described before about um, merchants um, building connections worldwide and wanted to ask which role do you think did notions of investment or profit and self-interest play in this period and how did they interact with the, um, with the developments you just described?
1: So in the in the book I play with the idea of polyvalent of meanings of, of speculation. So I, I look at how almanac authors were, were speculating about the future uh, of, of, of rivals like Britain or this or that politician. Um, but I also look at uh, high-minded political speculation and of course the more familiar financial speculation, which is why the, the subtitle of the book is, is The Age of Speculation, a book that studies the, the age of reason. So In a sense, investment, profit, and and self-interest provide the the grammar for the Spanish language of of reform in the 18th century. So, when the Dutch West India Company trades freely with with local companies of freed uh, blacks in Caracas, as they were known at the time, or when the British East India Company is the main credit lender in in Peru, the question then uh, arises as to how can you regain control over these types of transnational and illicit arrangements that are happening throughout your, your entire empire? And so, in response to the growth of of northern European corporations overpowering Iberian powers, which is, in a sense, the narrative of the 16th and 17th centuries, um, Spain and and Portugal, which I touch on in the book, both turned to to corporate forms of negotiation in order to to reconfigure the commercial relations with the with their neighbours and to carry out internal reforms. And and in a sense, they hoped that investment and profit could be the basis for international relations and could allow them to gain leverage in the in the international diplomatic stage and i think it's interesting that that in a sense history is littered with projects for peace that were grounded on the on the logic of profits and uh, and interests and today as states uh think uh, like uh, companies and and outsource a greater share of the administration of government and absorbable risks and international forms of interstate cooperation are being tested. Uh, I think thinking about the relationship between sovereignty, profits, investment, and international dialogue is is crucial for um, for our age.
0: Thank you for that insight into the book. Um, I wanted to go beyond that and, and kind of Uh, talk about your approach, because on the website, Brill describes your book as kind of reconfiguring the study of the origins of the Enlightenment in the Spanish Empire. Could you tell us what are the dominant interpretations of the period you examine, and how does the perspective that you just provided for us um, reconfigure them?
1: So the dominant perspective in comparative Enlightenment studies Is still that Catholic authorities and and beliefs stood in the way of the the growth of reason and the Enlightenment in the Spanish Empire. I I don't think that's changed in spite of uh, uh, a growing body of literature on this this topic that far predates my my book, uh, although this is by no means uh, the case everywhere. Um, In the field of the Spanish Enlightenment, the focus had traditionally been on the reforms of the second half of the of the century. And in this context, the earlier period, this this crisis to do with the war had generally been ignored. Um, there's also a kind of worrying trend where scholars in, in Spain and in the US, uh, there are not that many working in the in the UK um, uh, study the, the Spanish world and the growth of the age of reason without kind of speaking to, to one another. And I thought it was important to bring both strands of thought into into dialogue in, in the book. Um, and so in this context. The, the book really shows that Catholic beliefs were entirely in line with the growth of capitalist hopes, um, that they did not stand in the way of collaboration with Protestant powers like Britain, since a union of Spain and, and, and Britain is at the core of uh, the book, or projected union of the two I should say. And the first half of the century is crucial to, to our understanding of the, of the entire period, and I would say of the early 19th century and the revolutionary period. And, uh, as I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but the the Enlightenment was also not just about the creation of the of the modern state. It was a more internationalizing ambition to to it, which i which I talk about in the book.
0: yeah, let's uh, let's pick that thought up. Um, your book is entitled "The Diplomatic Enlightenment." I don't know myself, but is that a standing term or are you proposing new terminology here? And what exactly do you mean by it?
1: So behind this term is 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 really a desire to push against uh, this this idea that the enlightenment had to had to lead to to the nation, precisely, and that the nation is in a sense the, the guardian of the enlightenment. So there were other forms of representation, other ways of arranging transnational relations, both more radical and more more moderate. And other ways of, of creating uh, peaceful international order in a sense um, in particular I think corporations were not just uh, transnational political actors but their very existence uh, of uh, structures their structures and incentives in a sense encourage new ways of approaching uh, dilemmas of sovereignty and in, in international relations so today again in an age of, of corporate monopolies and discontent towards the the trappings of the modern state i think we need to um pay close attention to two earlier visions of the of the international so the, the the i mean the term itself is is by no means uh, intended to uh serve as a new category of, of enlightenment i'm not trying to introduce one Rather, it's a way of of focusing the reader's attention on the origins, the means, and the focus of uh, the Enlightenment in Spain. Um, I don't think it's particularly new. It's a concept that emerges, in a sense, from my reading of the theoretical frameworks of John Pocock and Lison Billy, and their works on the transnational movement of of ideas uh, in the 18th century. And, um, you know, in their work, they they challenge this notion that. Of, of thinking about uh, philosophers sitting down in and libraries to develop their own ideas in a kind of leisurely way um, by looking at the way that diplomats had to be a lot more nimble a lot more brief and deft in their writings they had to summarize a great deal of information and knowledge very quickly um, they benefited from transversal uh, networks thanks to their own personal experience uh, and then and, and of course their professional experience in uh, diplomatic meetings, they spoke several languages. They could read, uh, arrange uh, uh, across a range of languages, and uh, they did not have uh, to be consistent in their intellectual views, which I think was quite uh, quite significant. And uh, because the writings were, were rarely published, um, and instead directly influenced those 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 at the height of power. So this all led them to think about the relationship between. Uh, the territory they represented and the rest of the world in in ways that I think we're, we're still kind of learning about and uh, in ways that I sought to shed light on in the in the book. And this was not unique to to Spain. Again, this goes back to Popo Brambeli. Uh, diplomacy was a particularly vibrant area of intellectual change in, in Spain, I hope to show. Um, but I do hope that other scholars will pick up on on the idea of diplomacy uh, as, a, as a vehicle of uh, uh, transmission of ideas and tested in their respective contexts,
0: yeah, that sounds like this is a specific aspect that also the area and research of intellectual history should pick up and and um, can develop further. I suppose that you didn't know all of this before writing your book and before <laughs> conducting your research. so, I was wondering, did you come across any aspects within your research that were particularly interesting or even surprising to yourself who have, you have published quite a lot on the Spanish Empire so far. So um, any very new insights for you?
1: Well, I think uh, there's quite uh, a lot of interesting details uh, in the book from uh, uh, Spanish official thinking that uh, that a protest in Caracas is a type of um, uh, uh, second Dutch revolt, which will lead to to independence um, or the independence of the Spanish American territories. To um, to this question on on the almanacs, but but one particularly fascinating scheme was formulated in in Peru, and it planned to uh, send a polyglot and a minor to Europe to debate natural science and the mining industry with the greatest mines in London and Paris. So the idea was to gather a a community of miners and and mining officials uh, and have them come up with a list of of concerns and then have them, uh, have these travelers do a kind of grand tour of Europe in order to to get answers to to these questions. The idea was then to to print um, the solutions to to problems of mining. And uh, along with a, with a number of other scientific works, and this would form the basis of, of the reform of the mining industry in, in the Spanish Empire, which was in dire need of of reform. It was, uh generally a, an industry which which featured very cruel conditions. Um, and what's interesting is that the authors explicitly connect the reform of the mines to matters of of happiness and cheaper lending rates to. Um, for regular miners and then they even criticized the Spanish crown for, for preventing one science from growing in the in the Americas like they had done in, in Europe so that was quite a moving find and I hope that it will stimulate more research on that front.
0: That sounds fascinating. Um, I think we have covered or you have covered quite well how your book contributes to future research also in intellectual history and beyond so um, in light of the time, let me ask you one final question. What do you, what would you like your readers to take away from the book? Also considering that it might be not all of them professors or, or um, researchers in, in that area, but also people like me <laughs> who don't know much about the Spanish Empire yet
1: yeah i mean um there's many lessons i hope that, that someone will be able to to take from the from the book uh i mean i think for uh for uh, anyone interested in politics uh i think accepting the 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 failure of of the state or the many failures of a state and confronting these failures head-on is the, is the first step towards uh reform and uh for the average reader i i, I think this idea of um new forms of information and communication changing the way we think about the future um is is quite uh, interesting not least because as we as we see in the book you know again the growth of of, of new forms of communication is that's is not a new thing and it has always brought us challenges and and opportunities
0: thank you very much i see um that this has great relevance also for modern days so um Yeah, thank you again for taking the time today to speak to me. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Until then. All the best for you.
1: Thank you.